Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verses 43 to 47. Here in the Sermon on the Mount. Returning once again to Jesus' instruction to His disciples about how we are to live rightly. While you're turning there, I'll tell you the story of a reporter who was interviewing a 100-year-old man on his birthday. What are you most proud of? He, uh, the reporter asked. Well, said the man, I don't have an enemy in the world. What a beautiful thought. How inspirational, said the reporter. Yep, said the centenarian. I outlived them all. Well, in the passage before us, Jesus calls his disciples not simply to outlive their enemies, but to love them while they live. Let me invite you to consider your heart and your life and your love as we hear Jesus speak to us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Amen. This is God's word. May you write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, grant that your word would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Speak to us by it. Touch our hearts with it. Change us by the glory of and the grace of Christ, by the work of his spirit in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Four years ago, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white supremacist, murdered nine people in the historic Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Some of you might remember that. In, in the months before the attack, he often spoke of his hatred of, of Jews, blacks, and Hispanics, and his desire to ignite a race war in the United States. The, the, the world was properly horrified by what he did. But then it was also astonished by what happened after. When the relatives of the nine people he killed appeared in court and told Ruth they would forgive him. A daughter of one victim said, I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. The sister of another said, we have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. Jesus says we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This is 
the kind of life that can only be lived if you know the grace of God in your own life. We, we need to ask ourselves as we approach this passage and its demands, is God's grace at work in our lives? Is, are we united to Christ? Is Christ in us? And are we in Christ? And is Christ being formed in us so that we are manifesting Christ-likeness in love to our enemies? Only then can I love others as he has loved me. So let me point out some features of the passage in four parts about this love. First, it is to be unrestricted. Verse 43, unlike the Pharisees who shrunk it. It is to be expansive, verse 44, even to our enemies. It is to be imitative, like our Father in heaven, verse 44, 45. And it is going to be costly. Verses 46 and following. Let me have you think about those things. In the first place, we are not, Jesus says, we are not to restrict our neighbor love. Like the scribes and the Pharisees did and taught others to do. How do you see that? Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, quote, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now look, that's, that's half a quotation from the Old Testament and half a fabrication of it. You shall love your neighbor is a quote from Leviticus 19. Absolutely. The scribes and the Pharisees, though, had tucked in behind it. You shall hate your enemy. Once again, we see Jesus is not contrasting himself with Moses or the Old Testament law. Jesus is affirming, you shall love your enemy as yourself. But Jesus is speaking against the false teaching of the rabbis and the religious leaders of that day and their false tradition about what that passage taught and meant. They said it meant you can love your neighbor, but you can also hate your enemy and you ought to. Now, how do they get to that view before we just punch them in the face and say, I would never do that. Let's think about how did that, how might they have arrived at that view here? First of all, let me highlight three things. First of all, they might have done so, and I think this is pretty clear from the passage, by twisting Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, which said this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's that say? You shall not, God said to his people, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen. You can reason frankly with him. You don't have to hold back from speaking the truth to him. You can speak the truth to him. That may be hard to hear. But you can't take vengeance on him. And you can't bear a grudge against him. That passage said. But reading it or hearing it. What would you conclude? Or who would you conclude was your neighbor as you heard it? You, you might. And wrongly. But you might have concluded. Your neighbor was your brother or your countryman or your fellow Israelite, the sons of your own people, and only that. And the Pharisees were saying, yes, we've got to love these neighbors. They have a claim on our love, but some people don't. Some people don't deserve to be loved. We should hate them. 
The Pharisees, in other words, misunderstood the meaning of the word neighbor and they misapplied it. And so you remember, of course, they they at one time got into a a debate with Jesus about it when a lawyer asked Jesus after he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, as lawyers tend to do, probed a little further. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And very famously, of course, Jesus addressed who the neighbor is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But Jesus actually addresses it here, too. The Pharisees had defined neighbor as a person who had a claim on your love, a person who deserved to be treated kindly and lovingly by you. So they had redefined neighbor. Yet they did it contrary to the rest of Leviticus chapter 19 and other places in the Bible. For instance, later in Leviticus 19 at verse 34, they were told that they were to love the stranger, the resident alien, the the sojourner in their midst, the outsider who had come into their land. They were to love that person just like their fellow citizens. So that the demand of neighbor love, even in that chapter, was a universal demand. They twisted Leviticus 19. They twisted the rest of the scriptures too, for there is no command anywhere in the Bible to hate your enemy's guts. On the contrary, Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. And the rabbis obviously ignored passages like Proverbs 25, verse 21, which Paul will quote in Romans chapter 12, Where it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In other words, do practical acts of love towards your neighbor. And besides all this, though, besides twisting Leviticus 19, shrinking neighbor, besides ignoring other passages that required love, they might also have looked at And we have to comment on it at least a little bit. The imprecatory psalms of the Bible. Like we read earlier in the service from Psalm 58. Or some other classic ones like Psalm 137 and Psalm 69. And there are many others scattered here and there. What do we do about those? Do they justify hating our enemies? Well, no. Not unless Jesus is contradicting the Bible, his own word, where he commands us to love our enemies. So while this may not satisfy all of you, because I'm going to speak in brief about it, at least consider this. David is not speaking in the Psalms as an an individual acting in personal vengeance or revenge. He's not attacking his own personal individual enemies. He is appealing to God, not attacking them. And he's appealing to a God in hope of God's ultimate vengeance and vindication of God's own righteousness. That God will bring about what is just and fair and right. David isn't himself seeking to do so. He isn't praying out of personal vengeance. But as God's appointed representative who is asking God to do in the present, as Sinclair Ferguson put it, just a spoonful of what he will do in the last day. In the final judgment. Now the rabbis took that language. 
And they said, it's, you are therefore justified to hate your own personal enemies for, you, for whom you have personal animosity. Whereas the imprecatory psalms were about holy justice and indignation accomplished by God, they made it personal between them and others. And probably assumed that their enemies were God's enemies and God's enemies were their enemies and there was no way to distinguish the two. So that by the time of Jesus, in any case, you had institutionalized in the teachings of the Jewish leadership that you, yeah, love your neighbor and, yes, hate your enemy. They twisted the Bible into an excuse to be unloving. And Jesus says we never have an excuse to be unloving. We must not restrict our love that way. Second, Our love should be expansive. Verse 44, we are to love even our enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, of course, this is terribly difficult to do, right? It's easy to love those who love you, or at least usually it's easy to love those who love you, and though we get under each other's feet all the time anyway. But it's certainly hard to love those who don't love you. Hard to love those who have done you wrong, those who have abused you, those who have hurt you, even with malicious intent. They knew what they were doing and they did it. It's hard to love people who aren't seeking your best interest, but only their own. That's hard. Some of you perhaps have heard the name of the Southern Presbyterian minister, John Lafayette Gerardo. He was a prisoner of war, taken prisoner of war during... Uh, the late war between the states, the Civil War. When he came back to South Carolina to take up his ministry again after the war, he preached a passionate sermon on this passage, You Shall Love Your Neighbor. And uh, his youngest son heard that sermon and asked his dad questions all the way home. And he continued to ask him questions around the dinner table. He kept asking him specifics about how that sermon might apply to his own experience. Dad, does this mean I have to love the bully who beats me up at school? Yes, his father said. Dad, does this mean that we have to love people who've taken advantage of our family? Yes, his father said. Dad, does this mean we have to love Yankees? Sit down and eat your dinner, son. That's what he said. It's hard to love everyone God calls us to love. Especially to love those who hate us, those who despise us, those who ignore us, those who belittle us. Maybe it's the neighbor down the street. Maybe it's some co-worker at work for you who stabs you in the back. Maybe it's some cousin who won't speak to you. Maybe it's somebody in your own household who's at odds with you. Our our natural tendency is to what? It's to hate those who hate us. But Jesus puts the ball in our court on this, right? Jesus doesn't say, just stop expecting. I mean, Jesus is saying, stop expecting your enemies to change. You change. Stop expecting more from them. You do more for them. Stop expecting them to love you. You love them. Now you might hope for all those things. You might pray for all those things for that other person. But he's put the ball in your court. 
People who have sought you harm, you love them. People who have used you, you love them, he says. Don't hate them. Look for opportunities to do good to them. Notice this is a command. You are to love your enemies. It's not a suggestion. There is, therefore, no uh, conflict between law and love. The law demands love. Love fulfills the law. There's nothing contradictory about law and love. The Bible actually commands and demands that you love. We don't generally think of love that way, though, do we? I mean, some of you who are married, you remember when you found that sweetheart and you, you know, just got up next to her and you hoped that she would reciprocate love, but you didn't look her in the face and say, now you need to love me, right? You didn't command her love. You sought to win her love, I get it. You fell in love, we say. And of course, what we're talking about is all these emotions and feelings. And, and of course, then you had actions that followed suit. But in Scripture, love is not so much a matter of devotion as it is decision here. It can be commanded because you are required to do it. It's not primarily a matter of feelings. We may have feelings of love like romance. We may have feelings of love like friendship. Jesus isn't commanding either of those to just everybody. But he is commanding us to have a commitment of our will to do good, to seek the best interest of the other person, to see that they are blessed no matter what they have done and even in spite of what they have done. C.S. How would we do this? C.S. Lewis put it this way. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them all the more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference, says Lewis, between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings, and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes including people he could not even have imagined himself liking in the beginning. So loving my neighbor does not mean getting into a huddle with people I agree with about everything and then enjoying that. That's not love. It's liking, but it's not love. Not necessarily. And I want to say, even in a church, now... When I bring up the church, I'm not saying that anyone in the church of the Lord Jesus should ever be your enemy or that we should think of them that way. Though you may feel like there is somebody here, even in this room, that you're so at odds with, they feel that way. But I am saying that even in the church, we should practice loving across our differences, not practicing liking according to our agreements. It is precisely in our disagreements with one another that we have an opportunity to show true love. And I'm not saying every time we disagree with one another, we are enemies. But do you see that? We're called to love across our difference, called to love people we we don't naturally have affinity for. 
we, or that we naturally have a disinfinity for, if that's a word. Thomas Cranmer was the great Archbishop of Canterbury during the Reformation in England under Henry VIII and, and beyond. It was said of him, if you wanted to become his friend, you ought to do him ill. Because he was always anxious to return kindness and friendship for evil actions done towards him. Now that's something to emulate. We ought to be ready to do good towards those who are our enemies. So let me ask you, who are you seeking to be kind to even though they ignore you, dislike you, hate you, despise you, or are ungrateful to you? Jesus says, love them. Love them. And then I think here he tells us how at least to begin doing that and pray for them, he says. Pray for those who persecute you. Praying for them may just be the first step in your actually beginning to love them. Prayer is always loving. Prayer is bringing the other person to the throne of God. It is standing with them and next to them, so to speak. And bringing them before the throne of God. And as you pray for them, and seriously and earnestly pray for them, and pray for God's blessing on them, you may just find yourself beginning to actually love them. You're asking God to do good to them and to have mercy on them, and then you might begin to realize that they are a person upon whom you ought also to have mercy. Prayer is what Jesus did towards his enemies. Father, he said, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the first disciple to be martyred, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, did likewise. You remember he was preaching about Jesus in Acts chapter 6. The crowd came and they began to stone him to death. And before he perished, he fell on his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. So let me ask you, do you have an enemy who likes to put the dagger in your back? I want to suggest that if you keep praying for them, keep praying for God's best blessings on them, you may just find it difficult to continue to hate them. You know the story of the hiding place? The story of Corey Ten Boom? She was in her 30s when the Nazis came for her and her sister, and she and her sister were terribly abused by the guards. How could she, years later, seeing one of those guards come up to her trembling and ask her forgiveness? How could she forgive him? She had been praying all those years for those guards. How could Elizabeth Elliot take her two-year-old daughter back to the Alka Indian tribe that had martyred her own husband and his four companions and then live with them to share the gospel with them. Except that she had been praying for them. And she had never stopped praying for them. Do you pray for people who persecute you or use you? Do you ask God to have mercy on them or pity them? You ever ask God to save their soul or open their eyes to the glory of Jesus and and rescue them from the evil which they have done? 
you may just find if you're praying that, that it's the first step of love. Love your enemies, Jesus says, and pray for them. And then he says this, that that love should be imitative. Our love for our enemies should imitate our Heavenly Father's love for His enemies. Verse 45, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus isn't requiring us here to pretend that our enemies are friends. That just because we've loved them, they've turned around. He isn't saying, he isn't saying you should just ignore bad behavior or hurt, you know, hateful ways. He, he, he isn't saying, uh, just toughen up. Become a stoic. Don't cry. Don't weep. Don't grieve. You can do all those things. But he is saying in the midst of having an enemy, what you should do is put your attention on who your father in heaven is. And that will begin to take your eyes off just how awful that person is. Put your eyes on who your heavenly father is and contemplate who he is. He is a God who loves his enemies. And there's never a time then when we look more like our Father in Heaven than when we ourselves are loving our enemies. And it ought to be, <laughs> easy for me to say, it ought to be our great motivation that we should be like our Father in Heaven as we love our enemies. Now that love doesn't make us sons of God. You don't do good deeds in order to get a new nature and, and get adoption into the family of God. By doing loving deeds, we don't make ourselves children of the living God. It's the other way around. When the Spirit of God has come and He makes us His children, when He adopts us into His family, when He gives us a new heart and a new nature, we become the children of God and we begin to express that new nature and then we imitate God. And we walk in love and live a life of love as God has loved us. We begin to bear the family likeness. We begin to manifest who our Heavenly Father is. We begin to become what God has already said we are. Why is it by loving our enemies would I be the son of my Father in Heaven? Because Jesus says, what's your Heavenly Father like? He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, what? He is generous to his enemies, right? The sun and the rain make the Christian farmer's crops grow. And the sun and the rain make the non-Christian, pagan, God-hating man's farmer crops grow, right? This is part of what we might call God's common grace. His benevolent generosity to all of humanity. It doesn't... It doesn't mean that he shows saving grace and rescues the soul forever in heaven by pardoning their sins by the blood of Christ. Every last person. Jesus is not teaching universalism here. But he is saying universally everybody can say God has done good to me. He has been kind. He has been generous. He has been open-handed. It's sadly our rejection of him just compounds the righteousness of his judgment against us. But he loves. And he loves indiscriminately in this way. He loves widely. And so, as we said last time, to return evil for good is devilish. And to return evil for evil is fallenness. 
To return good for good is worldliness, but to return good for evil is godlikeness. If you love those who are good to you and those who are not good to you, you are like your Father in heaven. And so we're all on a trajectory in this life. We are all either becoming more and more like our loving Heavenly Father and Jesus, His Son, God in the flesh, who is perfectly loving, or we are becoming more and more like the devil himself, all twisted up on getting what is his in self-interested self-love. You might ask yourself, what trajectory are you on? You haven't arrived at the perfection of God. You haven't descended to the depths of the devil, I get it. But which way are you headed? Which way do you do aspire to head? Paul says, let this, your love be imitative of your Father in heaven. And then finally, he says, this love is costly. Verses 46 and 7. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That's where he starts. Tax collectors, why is he picking on them? Tax collectors were at the bottom of the moral scale by the opinion of the Jews of that day, right? These were, he's thinking of the Jews who've become tax collectors in service of the Roman Empire. And the way that they uh, gathered taxes was, was by farming, by a farm system, basically. The empire, the Roman emperor said, I want, I want this much money from that region or province. And you bid to get that contract to raise that much money in revenue. But of course, once you've satisfied the Roman emperor, anything else you got was gravy. And so it incentivized Manipulating people, arm twisting people, gathering more than what was necessary because you got rich. It was, it was one of the fastest ways to get rich. And so these people were despised. They were thought of as thieves on the one hand, and they were thought of as traitors to their fellow Jewish brethren on the other. And what does Jesus say about these people who his audience despise? He says they love one another. Tax collectors love one another. Even those people you despise as a parasite on society. They know how to love people who love them. Everybody does. If that's all you've got, Jesus says, you're no different. Do you only want to be just like them? Jesus says you want to stop being like them. You want to repent of only being like them. Yes, love those who love you and love those who hate you. Like your Father in heaven. And then he adds in, not just tax collectors, but Gentiles. If there was one thing worse than being called a tax collector, it was to be called a Gentile. uh, Or to be thought of as like a Gentile. If you greet only your brothers, what... This is verse 47. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Look, it's, uh, we do this all the time. We walk into church and we greet people we know and like, who like us, who will give us a good response. And, and maybe if we're thoughtful about it, we greet everybody we know. And I realize we don't do that here. I've been in cultures in Mexico and Peru where it was traditional 
when you arrived at the gathering of the church to meander the entire room and shake everybody's hand or give everybody a kiss on the cheek to greet everybody. And when they parted, they did likewise. Now, here we don't do that. I'm not suggesting you have to do that. But of course, it's always easy to greet people who are like you. And even Gentiles do that. Everybody does that. If that's all that you do, Jesus says, then what more have you done? You haven't done any more. You haven't been different. You haven't been like your heavenly father. So don't think you're pious and holy. When you're not greeting people you despise or think despise you. Your love, Jesus is saying, must be more than. He's saying my disciples, their love must be more than the love that tax collectors and Gentiles show. You need to love people who will not love you in return. And that means it will be costly, right? You have to what? Die to yourself to show that kind of love to another. You have to humble yourself, humble your pride, humble your sense of there ought to be reciprocity here. And serve then the person who is unworthy to be served. In a small Asian village, a newly believing farmer and his friend had a crisis. Their rice paddy, which they need to water every day out of the irrigation stream below them on the mountain, was on a terraced hillside, and they had to manually pump that water up the hillside every day. And one night, as they slept, the neighbor with the land between them and the irrigation stream defrauded them. He knocked a hole in the clay dike that retained the water on their property. It dropped down off theirs into his, and so he watered his with theirs. The next morning, of course, they saw what had happened, but, but you know, controlling themselves and as new believers, they thought, we need to be patient, we need to be loving, we'll overlook this, and they pumped water back up on to their land, having fixed their clay dike. And they went to bed. And the next morning, he did it again. And they said to themselves, well, we should be patient with him, we should be long-suffering like Jesus, and then after seven days, they just couldn't take it any longer. What do we do? And so they asked some older brothers and sisters in the faith, what do we do? And they said, well, let's, all right, let's pray about this, and they prayed. And after they prayed, one got up and said, well, you know, if you do the right thing and no more, then surely we're unprofitable servants. We ourselves should go beyond what is merely right. Try going the second mile. First, we suggest, if you're willing, first, irrigate that other man's land. And then, irrigate your own. And they did. And they did it again the next day. And they did it again the next day. And finally, that man, with a whole entourage of friends, came and said, I don't understand. Why are you doing what you are doing? And they said, it is because our Father in heaven has done this for us. He has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And having done it for us, we're doing it for you. And eventually, as he pondered that, that other man came to faith in Christ too. That same Christ says to us, don't just be nice to people who are nice to you. That costs you nothing. 
a mark of my disciple, a mark of being a child of the Heavenly Father, is not being kind to people who are kind to you only, but being kind to people who are unkind to you. And that may cost you everything. And as I say all these things, preaching to me as much as to you, I know that you feel your weakness in this. I know that you know your failures to love this way. I know that you fall far short of the love that your heavenly father has for his enemies. I'd ask you, is it your aspiration, though, to be like him? Do you want him to make you like himself? Are you then repenting and saying, Lord, make me more like you? But then I would also say this. There's comfort for us here, we who have failed. And our comfort is actually found in this text. For on the one hand, what kind of father in heaven do we have? We have the father who causes the sun and the rain to fall upon the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. We have the experience of the comfort of knowing we have been loved by our father. But more deeply than that, we know that The Father sent His own Son to the cross to lay down His life for us, to die for our sins, that He might raise us to live for Him in newness of life and then to begin to love other sinners like we've been loved. May God comfort us and then enable us. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We are naturally a hard-hearted, self-centered, cold-hearted, hateful people apart from your grace. And even graced in Jesus, Lord, we find these things to be hard and we're slow. We're not like you. Forgive us, cleanse us, change us, help us. Grant that we'd be more like our Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.